This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So I see where that is going. It does raise questions, though, if you are a corporate officer, what does this mean for you? What sort of information systems are you supposed to put in place? What is a good faith effort? What is a reasonable information system? And for compliance officers, I think the big question is, what actually is your responsibility and are you a corporate officer or not? This is Tom Fox. Welcome to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. In this episode, Matt and I take a very deep dive into the recent Delaware Court of Chancery opinion in McDonald's, which establishes a duty of oversight for corporate officers. This duty is well enshrined for boards of directors in the Caremark cases and its progeny, but this is the first time we've seen it for officers. We explore what this means for compliance professionals going forward. Before we get started with our podcast, a quick word from our sponsor. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox and Matt Kelly for a special live edition of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take up a hugely important and, more importantly, juicy case called In Ray McDonald's Court from the Delaware Court of Chancery. This court case established the duty of oversight for officers. Uh, that's right, as opposed to board members from Caremark and its progeny going forward. So we're going to slice and dice it. We are definitely going into the weeds. We may geek out on some law because I'm going to geek out on some law. And I hope we're going to end with what it all means for the compliance professional. And uh, spoiler alert, it's a lot. So, Matt, you want to set the stage on this, baby? Yeah, sure, Tom. So this case uh, was handed down from the Delaware Chancery Court Vice Chancellor, Travis Laster. Uh, He handed this decision down last week. Now, this involved shareholders of McDonald's, suing McDonald's former HR chief, David Fairhurst. And now Mr. Fairhurst was uh, one of the executives involved in the very messy scene of uh, the toxic culture at McDonald's in the late 2010s, where he and the former CEO, Steve Easterbrook, 
they both um, not only tolerated a sexually harassing culture, but really endorsed it, participated in it. Uh, both of them, um, at least Mr. Easterbrook, was admitted to having multiple affairs. Uh, eventually, he admitted to multiple affairs. He first lied and said he had only one, and then the board found multiple ones. Uh, but that was Mr. Easterbrook, and his partner in crime here was David Fairhurst, who, as head of HR, has also been accused of sexual harassment behavior himself. So uh, along come the shareholders suing David Fairhurst, saying that uh, he was disloyal to the company. And David Fairhurst had said, well, no, I don't have a duty of oversight because I am not a board director. And that was the argument put before Vice Chancellor Laster, who then last week ruled that actually Mr. Fairhurst does have a duty of oversight, even as a corporate officer, because the duties that pass from the board, uh, they come to the board for a duty of oversight, thanks to the Caremark decision. Uh, by the same principle, they also extend to corporate officers. And specifically, I will uh, read out exactly what uh, Judge Laster said here. This decision clarifies that corporate officers owe a duty of oversight. Uh, Mr. Fairhurst had an obligation to make a good faith effort to put in place reasonable information systems so that he obtained information necessary to do his job and report to the CEO and the board. And he could not consciously ignore red flags indicating that the corporation was going to suffer harm. So that is what Judge Laster said that Mr. Fairhurst must do, but it sets the precedent now that Caremark duties of oversight that apply to the board now also extend to corporate officers. In truth, Caremark and other pieces of Delaware law had been kind of sort of pointing in that direction anyways, and it does make a lot of common sense. It's just this is the first time we've actually had a judge at the Chancery Court string together those words in a sentence that, yes, duty of oversight information systems, reporting to the board, raising red flags, that applies to corporate officers as well. That's where we are. And then we can talk about all the implications because there are a lot. So Matt, I want to go into uh, a little more background on the case because I hadn't really thought through the uh, how Caremark was developed, but it had direct implications for this case. So in 1963, the Delaware Supreme Court and in Delaware, the Court of Chancery is the trial court, the court of first impression. Although the name sounds more impressive than the Delaware Supreme Court, it's actually the lowest court, much like New York's trial court is called the Supreme Court. But when you hear the Delaware Court of, court of Chancery, that means a trial judge. But these are very, very good lawyers who become judges in Delaware. They're very well thought of. They've generally been in practice 20 or 30 years. Uh, and they're uh, deemed to be some of the best corporate law practitioners who move into the bench. The Delaware Court of Chancery was the court that created Caremark, not the Delaware Supreme Court. But in 1963, the Delaware Supreme Court had actually created the first board oversight obligation or the first board obligation in a case called Aulis Chalmers. In Alice Chambers, the board was made aware of red flags, which uh, indicated illegal behavior and did nothing. And in there, the court said 
If a board is made aware of red flags, then the board must act in an oversight capacity. But it particularly carved out a caveat that the board had to have, did not have to have any system to uh, spot red flags. So someone had to bring the information to the board, but the board did not have an affirmative obligation. So this became a red flag doctrine for boards in Delaware. Caremark didn't create board obligations. It extended board obligations beyond simply red flags to, as you correctly noted, Matt, a duty of oversight to put systems in place. So the Caremark case developed the information systems theory of liability. And to further confuse things, the Alice Chalmers red flags is called a prong one claim. The Caremark uh, theory of liability is called a prong two claim. Typically, cases going forward are prong two because usually if a board's with, presented with red flags indicating illegal conduct, they're going to do something. Uh, and it's a, ver- it's a higher duty because you have to show the board knew. Under Caremark, you have to show the board should have known. So whether that's food safety for Bluebell ice cream, airline safety for Boeing, or myriad other examples, uh, these are all prong two claims. Now, that how that relates to Mr. Uh, um, Fairhaven? Fairhurst. Uh, Fairhurst. Uh, and I'm going to have to throw in Steve Easterbrook as well, is there were both prong one and prong two claims against them. Now, I'm going to have to now at this point drop out Mr. Easterbrook because this uh, Delaware Court of Chancery judge said that because he was terminated eventually for cause, there was no claim against the board for his conduct. He was terminated eventually, and uh, the clawback of his salary was enough to satisfy the Delaware Court in this case. But Mr. Fairhurst, as you noted, get engaged in uh, unwanted sexual harassment. He was drunk at corporate parties, and I'm going to throw that in gratuitously because I found that hilarious that the head of HR gets drunk at corporate (laughs) functions, uh, much into the uh, frat boy atmosphere of McDonald's. So he actually engaged in the conduct, and he didn't report that conduct, his conduct, to the board of directors. So it's both an information systems and a red flag. Now, after uh, Easterbrook, uh, after the scandal broke, because once again, he's the head of HR, he is part of the management response to the allegations of sexual harassment against McDonald's employees. There were two lawsuits filed, an employee's lawsuit and a franchisee employee's lawsuit. The franchisee employee's lawsuit alleged there had been no sexual harassment training, that 75% of women who worked in McDonald's franchisees franchisees stores had been sexually harassed, and 60% or 66%, almost two-thirds, of those uh, who had reported harassment and then um, turned over information uh, to the corporate office either received no response or uh, were uh, discriminated against going forward. The employees had the same numbers of those harassed, and uh, because they had a direct line into McDonald's HRs, actually had a higher percentage of discrimination. So there were two shareholder lawsuits. 
there was actually a 10-day strike by McDonald's franchisees over this issue, which I wasn't aware of. So this got to the board. So we had specific information, the information systems, prong two claims, in addition to the red flags, because Mr. Fairhurst himself knew uh, that the red flags had occurred because he'd engaged in them. So we had as egregious behavior of a head of HR, short of the CCO of Activision Blizzard that I have ever seen. Uh, And so we have really, really, really bad facts here. And I think that is one of the reasons which led the court to its conclusion. But the part I wanted to quote at this point, Matt, was uh, the following. And the court, in addition to those two theories of liability, said that boards who already have both prong one and prong duties under Alice Chalmers and Caremark don't govern in a vacuum. They depend on senior management. From the Caremark oversight role is more suited to corporate officers who are responsible for managing the day-to-day affairs of the corporation. And the first reason for recognizing oversight duty for directors uh, equally applies to officers, that the relevant and timely information for boards to make decisions is an essential predicate of board liability and indeed board governance. So that while the board may meet six to 10 times a year, senior officer engagement with the corporation is continuous. And from a practical perspective, the board's ability to effectively monitor is contingent upon adequate information flow. Um, I'm not sure. uh, And that fits obviously directly into the information systems type claim. So the court did make a step forward, but it was trying to show that it was a rational, logical, and indeed, I thought, natural extension of Caremark, given the horrendous facts that they were presented with in this case. I mean, I I agree with that, uh, that, you know, in the same way that the board is responsible for the whole enterprise and it needs to make decisions somehow, it depends on officers uh, who then have to be Uh, the stewards of their particular fields of responsibility. Uh, They collect information about what's going on within their purview, and then they report up to the board. Um, That is the logical nature of things. And if they're not reporting information to the board, either because they're not bothering to get the information or they're sitting on information, that, you know, I think is a very common sense dereliction of duty. So I see where that is going. Um, It does raise questions, though, if you are a corporate officer, what does this mean for you? What sort of information systems are you supposed to put in place? What is a good faith effort? What is a reasonable information system? Um, And for compliance officers, I think the big question is, uh, what actually is your responsibility? And are you a corporate officer or not? Um, Because the Laster's decision, it doesn't really delve into the the nuances of the the actual title and responsibility of a compliance officer. Um, You might be the functional head of compliance, like you are the chief person who worries about compliance, but you don't have that title. So does that mean you're a corporate officer or not? Um, But I also just want to give a shout out for any of our listeners who are on the internal audit side. If the board is responsible for 
having all of these information systems existing and in place, somebody somewhere has to help the board to say, yes, the CFO has good information systems for financial risks. No, the general counsel doesn't have good information systems in place for legal risks or HR risks or maybe technology risks or sales and marketing risks. There will need to be a collection of systems of information that are supposed to exist in the whole enterprise that feed up and help the board make decisions. The board might have some unease about how many of those systems are in place and how well are those systems working. Who are we going to lean on to help us make sure that that's all good? They would lean on internal auditors. So there is something for internal auditors to think about here, too. Although I still am primarily concerned about chief compliance officers or compliance officers generally, I'll put it that way, and how much liability they may or may not be facing here because they, um, they're they sort of in a class different than other corporate officers. And let's explore that exact point because uh, you pointed it out in your second blog post on this, Matt, which was the court noted the officer with responsibility for everything is CEO, and every other corporate officer who will come under this decision is responsible for their functional business unit. So internal audit, internal audit, CLO, chief legal officer, legal, chief financial officer, financial, with the exception of the chief compliance officer, because they're mm-hmm. responsible for culture. So we have two carve-outs. One, I absolutely agree with the CEO, the CCO, uh, I have to agree with that on a logical basis, even if I don't like it for our CCO sistren and brethren. But uh, you're responsible for everything. The point I wanted to maybe tease out from that, Matt, is now let's add that to CCO certification. Let's add that to the Monaco memo culture. Let's add that to Kenneth Polite, the uh, change in corporate enforcement policy around uh, effective compliance programs as defined by internal controls that pick up violations leading to a self-disclosure. And it struck me that this decision uh, is not, uh, although legally independent of all of those things around the Department of Justice, uh, clearly is, is really ramped up the heat on CCOs and put them Uh, in a category where there is a huger, if I can use that word, target now because of these new areas that either the DOJ is going to inquire into or now there's a potential liability on. Yeah, there's so much there that we need to unpack and dissect. Uh, Let me start with, I'm going to go back to the titles and is a compliance officer a corporate officer or not? And I don't know. Uh, Lassiter, or Judge Laster, he does clearly say the chief compliance officer must be a corporate officer. But my question would be, how do we handle this for the many organizations out there who have somebody who is, their chief responsibility is ethics and compliance issues, but they don't have that actual title? What if you are a senior counsel for ethics and compliance, but as a practical matter, you're the boss for compliance systems there. So does that mean you're a corporate officer or not? Because if you're just senior counsel, or better yet, your chief compliance officer and deputy general counsel, well, that by definition means you report into the general counsel. And I see that the general counsel, yeah, they're a corporate officer, full stop. But 
you can't be chief compliance officer and deputy GC and then still be a corporate officer because you're reporting into the general counsel. So they're the boss. So they should be the uh, corporate officer, I would guess. But, you know, go back to what I said before. What if you are the senior counsel for compliance matters? And so you're a corporate officer as well, even if you're three or four rungs down on the org chart. Um, Laster's ruling doesn't talk about any of that. He just moonwalks right by all of those things. And I think that really gets to the question for compliance professionals or compliance officers, like, do I have to worry about this? Because if you're the one who is nominally in charge of compliance risks at the organization, you could have compliance risks arise from almost anywhere. You're going to need very far-reaching information systems. Um, so how are we supposed to make this very logical concept work with the very practical structures in real corporations that don't neatly fit the language Laster is using. I, I don't know what the answer is there. But Tom, I also think you are spot on that we have to think through the Justice Department's requirements now for chief compliance officers certifying their programs. Laster and the Justice Department, you know, they didn't conspire here. They're not working together, but you can't think about one without thinking about the other, even though each one wasn't thinking about the other when it came into being. You know, the Justice Department's CCO requirement, that was in the works a year before Laster even made his ruling. But if you, the compliance officer, are supposed to sign off on the effectiveness of the compliance program, you and the CCO, I mean, to my thinking, that sort of implies you are co-equal with the CEO. You have to be a corporate officer. So therefore, you have some potential liabilities here. If you have a compliance failure, does that mean that your information systems weren't correct? Um, and if they weren't correct, could shareholders now come after you? I don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't think Lassiter was thinking about CCO certifications when he came up with his ruling. And I don't think the Justice Department was thinking about potential Delaware liability decisions when they came up with their policies. But for real compliance officers at real companies, you absolutely have to think, how do I navigate through both of these walls closing in on me at the same time? And there are a, a thousand different fact patterns we could spin up that would make this a really sticky mess. Laster and the Justice Department just came up with these two elegant theories that kind of, like I said, moonwalk right by all of these things that real compliance officers are going to have to think about. So I think the Lassiter ruling did more for the stature of the CCO far more than the Kinnipalite CCO certification requirement. And I say that because if a shareholder wants to sue now, and there is a, as you said, a titularly titled ethics and compliance head, uh, whether that be someone under the chief legal officer or uh, not at the senior executive, executive leadership team level, I think the shareholders can sue on that basis alone now uh, because they will claim that uh, there's liability for that. A uh, company didn't pick anyone at that level. A company clearly... Uh, doesn't care about that. And if there's a compliance failure uh, leading to a material charge or fine and penalty, I think that that would be uh, well-received in Delaware. 
But when you couple that with the elite CCO requirement or CCO certification requirement and, and your analysis of putting the CCO at that point co-equal to CEO, I think that the clear uh, import of that is the raiser, uh, raising of the stature of the CCO into that very highest level executive leadership team or C-suite is now going to be mandatory. And I think it's, that is going to elevate the CCO in all things beyond simply those few CCOs who have gone through a, a, an enforcement action and have signed off on a DPA and now have to, to certify whether they're started with the DPA or ended up with it separately. Uh, I think this is is going to increase both exposure, but also the stature of CCOs going forward. I don't know about that. I mean, I would love it if that were the case, but it can only elevate the CCO's responsibility and profile when the chief compliance officer at the organization goes to the board and says, you have to make me a corporate officer or else, you know, I'm not going to do the job. And then the board says, yes, that's a great idea. I don't know that that's going to necessarily happen all the time. I could see it happening when there is a actual, say, an FCPA resolution where you also have the justice, you know, if the company says, well, we're just going to have the senior counsel for ethics and compliance co-sign with the CEO. I don't think the Justice Department is even going to entertain that sort of a notion. You know, if you have a resolution, you're going to have a chief compliance officer, period, and that person will not be the general counsel. I suspect that's how it's going to happen with most FCPA settlements from here forward. But absent that forcing mechanism, if you're the head compliance person just going to the board and saying, I want to be a corporate officer and I want to qualify for D&O insurance or else I'm not going to do it, I don't know how many boards are going to respond to that. I don't know how they're going to respond to it, favorably or unfavorably or, or whatnot. Um, I could see a scenario where they say, all right, um, in that case, we'll just make the general counsel be the chief compliance officer, which is not an uncommon dual-headed role now. They already get DNO insurance, problem solved. And now you, the compliance person who came up with this idea, now you're reporting into legal. But you don't have the liability that might come, I think, because we haven't actually clarified that with Laster's ruling. So is that good? Is that bad? Do we not know? I'm going to land in the do not know camp, but uh, that's where we are. Like I, I think this is going to be a growing pain for the compliance profession, and maybe we'll come out good on the other side. But growing pains do involve pain, and I think there's going to be some of that in the short term. Uh, I agree with that. Let me address a concern raised by our colleague Kevin LaCroix over at the DNO Diary. Uh, he looked yeah. at this more from the fact, specific facts of the case around the position of David Fairhurst and the as the chief of human resources and sexual harassment claims. He is concerned that the floodgates now will open uh, against corporations where there is a significant sexual harassment claim. And I disagree with Kevin's analysis because there's still a materiality standard. Uh, shareholders have to bring a claim that is one, material, and two, they have to bring a claim in the name of the board where the board didn't do anything. And frankly, I can't imagine a situation yet where a FCPA violation is brought forward to a board and they didn't do anything with it. Uh, 
That's the good old prong one, Alice Chomler's uh, claim. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find uh, I don't I don't worry about that in the compliance perspective of this will open the floodgates of litigation uh, against compliance officers. But I think that corporate I don't think it's going to be CCOs going to the board saying I want an increase or I want a, to be a board. I think people like us are going to tell boards. The Delaware Supreme Court has now said if there's no oversight person on for compliance, you have a problem and you, Mr. Board or Ms. Board of Director, need to solve that. And I think that's where the, the push is going to come from, not from the bottom, maybe not from the top, but from the side. I mean, yes and no. Uh, you could easily counter and point out that the U.S. sentencing guidelines already do say you should have a specific human being in charge of the compliance program. But they don't actually say this person must be a corporate officer and should have the title of chief compliance officer. Um, Laster's ruling makes those two uh, last points I just said, it makes it much more likely that, yes, they should be a corporate officer. And, yes, it should have a chief compliance officer title uh, because otherwise, you know, there's going to be liability issues that are just a big mess. So make them a corporate officer, make them the chief and give them DNO insurance. Uh, the other good final point I wanted to make while it is still in my head, um, talking about Kevin LaCroix and uh, sexual harassment claims, uh, Kevin is, of course, required reading for any thoughts about DNO liability. I don't necessarily know about sexual harassment claims and opening the floodgate, but the question a lot of compliance officers should be thinking about is, under what circumstances would our company be accused of having a toxic culture? Where would that come from? What would the nature of that toxicity be? Who would be in charge of it? How would we fight it? Because that really is what was at issue with McDonald's, was a toxic culture that manifested as sexual harassment. There could be toxic cultures in other ways. Um, Wells Fargo might be a good example of a toxic culture that was high pressure. There weren't ever any sexual harassment issues at Wells Fargo that I know of. One of the very few misconduct allegations that never actually arose with Wells, but they managed to do just about everything else. And they had a terrible culture. So if compliance officers are thinking about information systems, they give me information about what? About a toxic culture. I would put that right up at the top, along with compliance risks, specific ones such as FCPA or export violations. But more generally, if people are saying we have a toxic culture, you, the compliance officer, you want to know that. You want to know where it's coming from, and you want to have a good game plan of how do we deal with it if that if that's the thing that comes up the, the chain of command. I'm going to tie that to the Kenneth Police speech changing or modifying the corporate enforcement policy um, where he said that we're going to find, define an effective compliance program as having effective internal controls, which allowed a violation to be picked up whether that violation is through a mechanical control, a a human looking at controls, or equally importantly, a hotline or reporting line. If you're not reporting, if you're not getting reports, or if reporters are uh, discriminated or retaliated against, I think that's going to be the biggest indicia uh, of a toxic culture, uh, and that will be severely sanctioned by both the Department of Justice and uh, the Delaware courts if an appropriate shareholder suit arises. Uh, I would agree with that. And uh, just one final shout out back to our internal audit fans who might be on uh, effective accounting controls, effective internal controls. 
compliance officers know they're important and they know a lot about what those controls should be, but how would you actually assure that those controls are working as intended to capture information and relay it up? That is a job that internal auditors could handle. And I think that this is another reminder of how important they also will be to this big puzzle that has now landed on the laps of compliance officers. Uh, that sounds like a great way to button this uh, episode up, Matt. I can't look or I can't uh, wait to see what we can come up with next time. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'm pleased to announce that Compliance Into the Weeds won a 2022 Communicators Award in two categories for the best co-host and for best business podcast. So thanks to all of our listeners who supported us for the Communicator Award. Hope you will join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive into the compliance weeds. Finally, if you thought about starting your own podcast, please contact me. I'd love to help you either uh, help you produce your podcast or put you on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. The award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.